This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bruno Shirley, a co-host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Alistair Gornell about his recent book, Rewriting Buddhism, Pali Literature and Monastic Reform, 1157 through 1270. Rewriting Buddhism is available to download open access at uclpress.com forward slash Buddhism. Alistair, um, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Bruno. Thanks for having me on. So I was hoping um, before we start talking about the book itself, you could just tell us a little about yourself. How did you come to be interested in Pali literature and eventually write this whole book about it? Sure. So I think I, I first became aware of uh, Theravada Buddhism uh, and also Pali, its its sacred language, um, as, a, as a late teenager. Um, I think my dad, when I was about 16, 17, gave me some books by... Uh, Dalai Lama and stuff. And um, that actually kind of changed my ideas about what I wanted to do at university. Um, so I decided eventually to do religious studies at SOAS, University of London. And there in my first year, I had the uh, good fortune to meet um, Kate Crosby, who is now a professor of Buddhist studies at, at King's College London. And, you know, she was offering these Pali classes and, you know, it's kind of unusual um, in the sense that Kate basically, uh, she offers these Pali classes and you don't need to know, say, Sanskrit before you take them. And so they were open to everybody. Um, and so I joined it up uh, fairly naive about what, what Pali was. And I think in, in that first year, I was, I was definitely the worst student in that class. But, um, you know, I enjoyed the language and, and so I decided to continue on doing it. And um, in my second year, I picked up Sanskrit with um, Whitney Cox, who's now at the, the University of Chicago, and a bit of Thai as well. Now, um, at that time, Kate was working on uh, Sri Lankan Pali literature. And it was basically through, through her that I became interested in Sri Lankan Buddhism, in particular, it, its medieval history. Um, and so I continued on at, at SOAS to do a, to a master's degree in the study of religion. And during this time, I was, I was visiting India as well uh, to study Sanskrit and, and Pali with um, a professor called Mahesh Deoka. And he's probably the, the greatest living expert in, in Pali literature uh, today. And he was also a, an expert on Pali grammar, these traditional Pali grammars. And so I would see him in his classes, teaching these these traditional Pali grammars, uh, Kachayana, Mokalana. And at the time, I didn't really see what the interest was in these things. Um, 
I didn't quite get it. But then when I when I returned to London, um, we I think as part of a, a course we visited the the British Library and we had a look at the um, the Neville collection of Sri Lankan manuscripts. And so when I was looking at this catalogue, I realised there were these huge amounts of of Pali grammars in this collection and. You know, I was struck by, you know, why are there so many of these these texts? Um, so I wrote an essay on this on this collection and these and these manuscripts, and I came to discover that basically all of these Pali grammars were written in the 12th and 13th century Sri Lanka, and that they were basically little studied in in the English language at least. And I guess you know, when I, at the time, I, I was I was kind of excited by the idea that that these texts had been so clearly so important. Um, to the Buddhist tradition, but that they were relatively little known about. Um, and so I decided that, that I would like to kind of study them further, potentially, you know, as a, uh, when I was doing a PhD. Um, but I, I soon came to realize that when, when reading these texts, you couldn't really uh, understand what was going on without a knowledge of uh, traditional Sanskrit grammar. And so I decided to to leave London and, and went to do my PhD at Cambridge uh, with uh, Dr. Ivan Kass, who is an expert in Sanskrit grammar, um, but he's also written about Pali grammar and uh, other traditional forms of of South Asian hermeneutics, such as um, Nirukta, uh, semantic analysis or or etymology. And um, I ended up writing my PhD on these, these medieval Sri Lankan Pali grammatical texts. And I guess, you know, I, I, I was um, motivated to kind of answer two, two questions, really, uh, in the PhD. So, you know, on the one hand, I was really trying to understand uh, what is the relevance of grammatical literature to Buddhism, right? Um, why were scholar monks writing loads and loads of Pali grammars rather than, you know, uh, writing commentaries on, on, on the suttas, on, on the Buddha's discourses? Um, and then the second question I was really trying to answer was, you know, why specifically in, in the 12th and 13th centuries were these grammars written? You know, what was going on in Sri Lanka at that particular time that meant uh, all this literature was was written? Um, and so with respect to like the second question, I guess it was probably about halfway through the PhD, I realized that actually if I was to answer that question at all adequately, um, I would, you know, it really require a kind of a more synthetic historical interpretation of, of of all the Pali literature that was was written in the 12th and 13th centuries. And so, you know, I came to realize that it wasn't just grammar that was new in, in this period, but there were new types of commentaries, new types of these kind of uh, scholastic handbooks, um, poems, this ornate poetry, and also works on poetics um, as well. And so. When I uh, got a position in Singapore, I basically spent the uh, the next five years or more um, expanding this PhD um, to become the book, uh, Rewriting Buddhism, as it is now. Well, that's a really great introduction to the book, and um, particularly perhaps the, the first section, which does focus heavily on grammatical texts. Um, and I was wondering, before we get into the, the details of particular texts or authors, if if you care to speak about the overarching narrative of the book, maybe the answers to those two questions that you um, you you came to realize were significant during your PhD, um, and perhaps also the significance of your your section headings in the book. You've got these very evocative chaos, order, emotion 
divisions. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, so rewriting Buddhism is is essentially it's an intellectual history of Theravada Buddhism and its Pali literature um, in in twelfth and thirteenth century Sri Lanka. And uh, this period, uh, it, it's it's kind of remembered for for a number of reasons. Um, so, principally. Uh, it is it is the era in which the monastic community in Sri Lanka was uh, reunified during the reign of Parakramabahu I, who ruled between uh, 1157 and 1186. And in early uh, English language histories, he, he's often referred to as Parakramabahu the Great. And um, for much of the, the, the history of, of Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka, um, the monastic community was split into three different groups or, or fraternities, if you will. Um, the, the Mahavihara, the Abhayagiri, and the Jetavanna. And so the first split occurred in, in the first century BCE. And then the second split where the Jetavanna was formed occurred in, in the third century uh, of the common era. And so this divided monastic community essentially continued for more than um, a thousand years, I guess, until 1165, when Parakramabahu, this great king, oversaw the uh, reunification and reform of the monastic community. And so this is this is the main reason I refer to this period in the book as Sri Lanka's reform era, um, because towards the end, about a hundred or so years later, you have a couple of other kings who, in a sense, try to replicate what what, what Parakramabahu did, um, but but certainly not on the same scale. And um, after this this unification uh, in 1165, um, Buddhist monks, they produced a a huge amount of of Pali literature, principally. And so when we look at all the Pali literature that that was composed in Sri Lanka and South India for for much of its history, um, you know, this this era accounts for about a third or or perhaps even more, um, maybe even a half of all the Pali literature that was ever written. And so, you know, taking into account the thousands of years history that, that of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, you know, just in this hundred years, you essentially get about a third or, or half the, the Pali literature written, uh, at least in terms of works composed in, in Sri Lanka and South India. And as I said before, you know, this, this, um, this literature was very diverse and, and these monks were writing in new genres, which they had never written in before, um, these new types of grammar, history, poetry, commentary, that kind of thing. Um, and this period is also, I guess, uh, remembered um, because it is it is the the era in which monks from Sri Lanka they they travelled to Southeast Asia and they established lineages there. And similarly, you get some monks coming from Burma um, travelling to Sri Lanka too. And when they returned back to Southeast Asia, they brought these Sri Lankan monastic lineages as well. And so, you know, this period, in a sense, we can think of it as as the beginning of, of Theravada Buddhism as a as a trans-regional formation, you know, encompassing uh, Sri Lanka, um, parts of South India at that point, and, and Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, when we look at the monastic curricula in, in the region uh, today, what we might kind of call the, the Theravada world, um, monks are still very much focused on studying the the texts which were composed during this reform era in Sri Lanka, and so these works still very much remain authoritative in in monastic curricula today. 
Now, when we when we look at um, and what historians, you know, have said about this period, essentially, see, you know, historians have tried to explain this area or this 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 era of cultural productivity. Um, as a simply uh, a product of the 30-year reign of Parakramabahu I. So Parakramabahu, you know, he, he was this great, powerful king who conquered the whole of the island and he, he, he welded it together through physical force and, and, um, and you know, centralized um, power very much. And historians have argued that essentially his reign created this kind of peace and tranquility um, in which monastic community could simply engage in, in religious works, in, in, in scholarly writing, um, simply for the fact that they weren't disturbed. And so for this reason, um, you know, historians have referred to this as Sri Lanka's Augustan age, um, drawing parallels with, with Roman and Latin literary history. Um, but then, when I when I came to look at the details of the period, um, I realized that this this narrative was actually only partially true. So, so in fact, you know, Parakrambahu the first reign was an exception to the more more general trend towards political fragmentation and uh, and localization on the island. So, what do I mean by that? So, um, before and after his rule, um, there were these bitter civil wars between rival royal factions. And um, in the 50 years that followed his reign in particular, uh, there were around 16 kings and queens to take the throne. And so each of these kings and queens, you know, they, they didn't actually rule much of Sri Lanka. Their, their power was relatively um, limited. And so essentially Sri Lanka was, was uh, ruled by this kind of interesting uh, bunch of characters, um, but none of which, you know, none of whom, you know, they, they actually governed much of the island. And I found when I looked into the Pali literature and I was looking at to when it was written, I found that um, most of the Pali literature produced during this period was actually uh, a product of this era of turmoil rather than the stability of, of Parakrambahu's reign. And so, you know, I began to question whether uh, essentially it, it was, it was um, right to, to interpret this era of cultural productivity only as this byproduct of stability while, um, you know, essentially ignoring the more chaotic character of the period, either side of his, of his rule. Um, and I found, too, that, that the, the unification um, and reform of the monastic community, while Parakramabahu, you know, he, he, he oversaw the event of the reform in 1165, um, the actual process of reform had begun before Parakrambahu's reign, and um, it also continued afterwards, but without uh, necessarily having any royal supervision. Um, so, in, in the in the years you know after his reign, again, the the, the monastic community, for instance, it, it it increasingly styled itself as an independent royal court um, with a king-like figure uh, known as the Grand Master or Mahasami. Um, and its its own hierarchy, I guess, became you know it became completely you know um, kind of uh, very complicated, complex. And um, the monastic community cultivated a kind of organizational autonomy 
um, that essentially allowed it to survive this political upheaval. And so this is why I characterize this context of the whole book as chaos, because what I'm trying to do is essentially direct people's attention to these periods, either side of Parakurambahu's rule, which I feel the monastic community was primarily responding to um, in in its desires for reform and its desire for, for this kind of era of cultural productivity. And so when I came to uh, read the writings of the monks of this this period, um, you know, I also found that that the the monks themselves saw the works that they were they were writing as a kind of response to to perceived disorder in their religious tradition rather than any form of uh, stability. And you know they, they were really motivated to control the chaotic social and and political forces um, that had destabilized their their community prior to uh, Parakrambahu's reign and then again afterwards. So, you know, in this sense, monastic literature, you know, it wasn't simply a kind of byproduct of politics in the way it had been described previously. But it, but you know, I was trying to show in the book that essentially it, that, that monastic literature itself was highly political. You know, it was a it was um, a kind of intervention by monks to reshape their their circumstances. So, you know, in the book, I, I distinguish two overlapping sides to this to this political engagement, which I, I write about in in the two sections you mentioned, um, order and emotion. So, on the one hand. Um, Monks, they, they, they wrote to, to better unify monastic behavior and practice. In a sense, Pali literature formed a kind of organizational plane on which they could uh, think, you know, arrange their thoughts and ideas. And, you know, they, they also wrote to, to standardize monastic education, um, which was, you know, key in constituting the monastic community's new, more autonomous political hierarchy. And so that is kind of what, what, what I mean by, by order. And then on the other hand, you know, they wrote um, these great works of literature um, to uh, address the kind of more localized politics of the period. Um, that, you know, they were trying to establish these emotional, uh, devotional ties with uh, these, these minor princes and, and, and kind of smaller warlords who dominated Sri Lanka's political, political landscape after Prakramabahu. Um, and also these literary works, you know, they, they were they were employed to strengthen the the effective ties of 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 their own religious community as well, right? So in a sense, um, you know, emotion was was this 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 ability to also order society, but but in a slightly different way to to the way to um, the the kind of organization of ideas by by expanding this emotional community they could in a sense you know secure their patronage from smaller rulers but they also could con consolidate their own their own um coherence as a, as a community um and so from this perspective essentially you know i argue that you know this this unprecedentedly productive literary period right this period of literary efflorescence um in sri lanka's history it was basically a much you know it, it was as much about um the monastic community trying to survive amidst a kind of period of political fragmentation and chaos, uh, you know, maintaining its unity, uh, expanding its power, um, as it was about, you know, the supposed peace and tranquility of Parakrambahu's rule, um, in essence. And with um, such dramatic stakes, 
how do we fit in grammar? Like what, what is at stake in grammar here? What do we learn more generally from paying attention to these grammatical texts that you, you initially started this project working on? Uh, that's a great question. So, um, so Pali grammar was, was really important for the, for the monastic community. Um, you know, in its attempts to to maintain that monastic unity and to to fight the forces of perceived religious decline. So, you know, to wonder to understand why, um, you know, it's important to first note that that the Buddhist tradition, you know, had had long believed in a kind of ontological connection between the state of the Buddhist teachings, um, the Dhamma, and and the social and moral state of, of the the world right or the cosmos so traditionally um buddhists have believed that the the world is is kind of inevitably marching towards degeneration and decline and the the buddha's teachings too are you know they're supposed to only last for five thousand years and their deterioration um it kind of conditions this societal and cosmological collapse. And so to preserve the Buddha's teachings is to, in many ways, um, postpone and maybe even temporarily reverse this process. So essentially, you know, the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist tradition is, is, you know, in constant decline and it will only last 5,000 years. And, you know, by the time you, you get to the end of those 5,000 years, Nirvana is essentially impossible and once you know Buddha's teachings disappear, the the cosmos undergoes a kind of existential collapse as well. Finally, uh, being subsumed into uh, this inferno or or um, floods or hurricanes, this kind of thing. And so, this sense of decline was certainly uh, heightened during the the Reform era. And um, monks in their in their writings, you know, they often frame their scholarly interventions in these cosmological terms. So, um, prior to the reform era, though, you know, this this kind of practice of of conserving the Dhamma, protecting the Dhamma, it basically manifested in the writing of commentaries on the Pali Canon, because essentially the Pali Canon was the Dhamma, right? You know, it, it, the Tipitaka it was their most sacred scriptures. Um, but during the reforms, uh, a new idea emerged that actually, you know, the first line of defense of the Dhamma was not necessarily writing commentaries on the wording of the, the Pali Canon, but it was actually to, um, to care for the language or to care for the grammar of the language that those scriptures were written in. So monks became particularly concerned with uh, what they saw as like the underlying order of the Pali language. Um, it's it's grammatical structure and so and uh, you know there's there's some evidence in these grammatical writings that they actually blamed the previous grammatical scholarship um for the uh the kind of confusion and disorder that their religion religious tradition had had found itself in and so you know as part of this idea that grammar was somehow the foundation of textual order and therefore based on this homology between language and and social social and moral order you know it was you know grammar was also the foundation of in a sense the, the cosmic order um they were looking for new models of grammatical scholarship um that they thought were kind of superior to the to the ones that had failed them and so they they turned to models from the sanskrit tradition um which they saw as kind of more expressive of a a 
ideal form of linguistic order. So it's it's kind of perhaps important to note here that that they um, these monks, you know, they weren't writing in Sanskrit. They were they were experts in Sanskrit. Um, they knew Sanskrit very well, but they never used Sanskrit to say explicate the the Buddha's teachings. But what they were interested in was essentially the Sanskritic idea of language. Um, and they wanted to show that Pali was as much language as Sanskrit was language. And so they used uh, Sanskrit, Sanskritic techniques of linguistic analysis to show this. And so they created these, these new grammars for, for Pali on the, the basis of, of these Sanskrit antecedents. Um, essentially, you know, with the, with the understanding that they, they were creating a better ordered foundation for the for the study of their scriptures but also fundamentally for their for their religious tradition and also for the for the uh their society as a whole um now in in many ways you know this idealized connection between uh grammatical order and societal order was was it was already present in the sanskrit tradition especially the sanskrit court cultures of india um you know kings in India, would be would patronize the production of Sanskrit grammars. They would author Sanskrit grammars again, based on the similar idea that the person who who masters language also masters the world, based on this ontological connection between the two. And so, similarly, you know, in the in the reform monastic community, um, most of the Pali grammatical scholarship from the reform era was composed by uh, the monastic community's own leader the Grand Master or Mahasami, um, as again, you know, this, this, uh, it, was, it was the principal foundational discipline um, for actively maintaining both textual and social order. And so it was essentially, you know, the responsibility of the, the political leader, right? So in this case, the, the Grand Master in the, in the monastic community. And, and that Grand Master would also be involved, I suppose, then in this sort of blossoming of exegetical literature you document in the following chapters, right? Commentaries, sub-commentaries, anthologies. Are similar processes going on there? What did these authors understand themselves to be doing? Sure, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, in, in, in many ways, um, the composition of, of exegetical literature during the period, so we're talking about commentaries, uh, handbooks, and anthologies, um, their production essentially followed a similar logic to uh, the production of grammar, you know, in that all of these works were in some way attempting to preserve the Buddha's teachings. Um, and so we see, you know, similar changes in, in the methods of, of commentaries, handbooks and anthologies uh, that we do in grammar, um, based in part, again, on the application of uh, Sanskritic or Sanskrit exegetical practices. Um so to give an example, um, you know, commentaries, they become increasingly detailed and systematic. Um, the, these handbooks and anthologies, what we begin to see is, is the use of contents lists, um, referencing uh, explicit kind of citations and, and also kind of rudimentary forms of bibliography as well. And, you know, there are two related reasons for this. So... First of all, you know, the monastic community, you know, it had, it had standard, standardized um, monastic education and monastic schools were the, the foundation on which the community's structural hierarchy was based. Um, 
So these formal changes in you know that we see in these commentaries, they were they were essentially you know they were part of the birth of, of scholasticism in Buddhism in Sri Lanka, and they 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 reflect the needs of the late medieval school system. And so, for instance, in the commentaries, you will have you know very systematic order of exegesis, analyzing words in terms of their meaning, their grammatical senses, and they'll be included in all of these texts. A kind of question and answer, which will in many ways, replicate what you could imagine was going on in, in the kind of classrooms of these these schools, which formed the basis of, of the monastic hierarchy. But, you know, behind all of that, behind these practical considerations of, you know, there is always this, this more metaphysical idea that these new textual approaches would uh, bring greater order to the Buddha's teachings uh, and also to then to the society around them. Um, and... Um, you know, alongside, I guess, this greater systematicity um, in these works, we see uh, other developments in the exegetical literature of the period. Um, one of which is that these texts, you know, they begin to move away from older, more formal ideas of, of scriptural authority. So um, traditionally, um, ultimate religious authority, it, it, it resided in the literal wording of the Buddha's discourses. Um, as preserved in the Pali Canon or the Tipitaka, right? Um, and so a lot of the exegetical work before this period, it's, you know, Pali literature is basically writing commentaries on the wording of the canon. Um, you know, we get some histories of the of the monastic community as well, but the majority of literature is simply just writing commentaries on, on the Pali Canon. But then as we move into this reform era, um, we see that exegetical attention, it, it largely moves away from commenting on the canon. Um, and so a lot of these commentaries that are being composed, they're, they're being written to support this study of, of these school handbooks. Um, and the, the handbooks and the anthologies too, you know, they're not only based on the Pali canon anymore, but they're basically these uh, works which synthesize the commentarial literature that are developed around the canon and essentially all the monastic writings that had happened in in the preceding uh, thousand years. But the interesting thing is, is that the the you know when these monks are writing these new anthologies, they still state you know as if they were the old type of commentator. They still state that they're preserving uh, the Buddha's teachings, um, but rather than you know saying that they are going to um, uh, preserve the, the wording of these teachings, they all focus on the fact that they are preserving what they call its essential meaning, This in, in Pali, this sara-atta, sara-atta. Um, and so in the, in the rhetoric of these, in, of these exegetes, we see a, a shift in focus um, away from a concern with the, the, the literal wording of their scriptures towards uh, essentially what we can kind of think of as, as, as an interest in, in representing the meaning of the Buddhist tradition in new forms, but still saying that they are preserving um, the Buddha's teachings. Um, and so, you know, this, this kind of shift in the practice of conservation, it allowed them, you know, greater flexibility in tailoring Buddhist doctrines and, and practices that, that were more suited to their, to their environment. Right. So to give an example, in, in one of these anthologies, um, essentially during the reform era, 
we we see a, a new practice begins to emerge of worshipping the Dhamma as a relic. And so we start to get shrines to the Dhamma, as well as, you know, we in the old tradition, you would have still shrines to the Buddha. Buddha relics would be, would be enshrined in stupas. But now we start to get uh, scriptural texts enshrined in stupas. And this caused a, a legal problem, essentially, in the Sangha, because there was an economic question here, whether the, the wealth of these shrines to the Dhamma would, could be able to be transferred to the, the shrines to the Buddha and, and vice versa, whether the wealth was transferable. And so in one of these anthologies, you know, this in, in one of its principal chapters deals with this issue. And this, you know, in a, in a commentary on the, the actual literal text of the monastic discipline, this issue, you know, is buried deep in, in a very obscure part of the Vinaya. But allowing um, the, this, this, these processes of compilation, um, of abstraction, you know, allowed these monks to to take issues which were more meaningful to their monastic community and put them at the forefront of, of their works, but still saying that they are preserving this essence of the Buddha's teachings, even though they have, you know, moved quite far away from any uh, any relevance, really, to, to what is in the actual literal wording of the Vinaya. Um, so... You know, in a sense, I would say just to sum up, you know, they could use, uh, they, they were better able to use a variety of sources, um, you know, and not just the literal text of their scriptures. Um, but at the same time, what's important is that they still claimed the authority of representing the meaning of the Buddha's teachings. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, definitely the most interesting explanation of a legal problem I've heard in quite a while. Um, <laughs> so it, in, in the third part of the book, um, you turn to to aesthetics, um, sort of Sanskrit, almost Sanskritic aesthetics, in the pursuit of what I think you call at one point karmically transformative emotions. And I, I think as well, you make the point that this is not the Ashvagosha style, you know, a spoonful of sugar to help the Dharma go down, but something that is, aesthetics is important in their own right. Would you mind elaborating on that a little or explaining what's happening in that section? Sure, Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, during this period, um, you know, we, in, in the reform era, we get these, these, these new literary works, which are very ornate. And again, you know, they're modeled on the Sanskrit tradition. But, you know, whereas, say, you know, the Sanskrit Buddhist, you know, Buddhist writing in Sanskrit in India, you know, had long been using um, this very ornate style of literature, you get someone, as you mentioned, you know, such as Ashvagosha, who essentially uses court literature as a kind of Trojan horse <laughs> in which, you know, to entertain a king, but at the same time to smuggle in some Buddhist doctrine at the same time. But the Pali, the context in, in Sri Lanka is, is very different. So um, it has a lot to do with uh, changing attitudes to emotion in the reform era. So, you know, a thread running through a lot of this literature is, is a turn towards more devotional practices. Um, now the the theorization of devotion in the the anthologies, for instance, is often you know it's often framed similarly to the commentaries within traditional ideas about cosmological decline, and um, of course you know there is this very real backdrop of of the social and political um, turmoil that a lot of these monks were were writing in, um, and this focus on devotion, this shift towards devotion in the in the literature of the era, it essentially reflects this idea that. Um, you know, nirvana was was increasingly difficult to achieve. Um, Buddhism had declined to such an extent that maybe liberation was no longer possible, or at least um, 
there were more limits on human uh, freedom in being able to achieve li liberation, and, and you need some help to do that. And so, you know, monks started to focus a lot more, at least, you know, openly on on heavenly rebirths as a goal. And in particular, um, some elites, at least a lot of these authors that I was dealing with, they they aim now to be reborn as, as Buddhas um, in, in the distant future. So these... Um, you know, the, these devotional practices that they were engaged in, it, they, they center on basically cultivating favorable emotions. Um, in particular, this emotion called pasada, which is loosely, we can kind of call it a serene joy. Um, and they, they were aiming, you know, devotion involved cultivating this emotion in relation to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, the monastic community. Um, and these emotions were considered to be karmically transformative in that, Experiencing them um, was thought to kind of condition massive beneficial results, right? Such as a heavenly rebirth or, or creating a pathway to Buddhahood in a in a distant future, for instance. So, in one of this one of these stories that that is um, quite which we find in, in this period, uh, you have the story of this owl where the Buddha is teaching his monks, and this owl comes and he flies down and lands at the Buddha's feet, and he kind of prostrates to the Buddha. And, and folds his wings, supposedly in Anjali, and this owl experiences this pasada, this serene joy. And the Buddha then says to this monk, he says, you know, look at this owl. Um, because this owl is experiencing joy in my presence, um, he is basically, this owl has set in motion a, a karmic chain of, of events that will lead it eventually to become a Buddha. And he said, this, this owl will, will become the Buddha Somanasa. Um, and so, you know, this this kind of shows the power of these emotions. So, in in the in the chaos of this reform era, right? Um, you know, this this focus on emotion it, it led monks to experiment with new forms of devotional practice because essentially, you know, it sounds weird, but but these monks were were pleasure seekers, right? They were they were they were seeking out these spiritual pleasures, which were somehow inc incredibly transformative for them uh, karmically. And so they were, they were finding new ways of doing this, you know, finding new ways of, of, of achieving this pasada. So one of the ways that they did it is, is, is through the experimenting with new forms of, of poetry. And it's worth saying here that, that, you know, prior to this period, the, the Theravada Buddhist tradition, you know, had been, you know, and, you know, apathetic or, or perhaps even hostile to, to ornate poetry in particular, Sanskritic ornate poetry. And so, you know, the, um, you know, I think it's in, in the Brahmajala Sutta, the, the, the Buddha, you know, he famously refers to poetry, and, and I guess we have to think of, of, of Sanskrit poetry here as bestial knowledge. Um, but the difference, you know, in the former is essentially, you know, this, this poetry, um, scholar monks start to use this Sanskrit court poetry um, to produce new forms of devotional literature to the Buddha um, that could uh, inspire this pasada, this, these devotional sentiments. Um, and to, to facilitate this, they kind of manifest. They 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 they, um, they wrote these new manuals for for poetry, um, which essentially turned this courtly eloquence into into a moral practice. Um, uh, you know, leading towards this this devotional um, goal. And they also wrote new Buddha biographies and uh, these devotional histories of the the Buddha's relics as well. Um, 
Now, it's important to stress that, you know, this literature was not simply um, a, what can I say, like a, a vehicle for, for, for personal transformation, right? It was, um, it was composed to instill uh, devotional sentiments uh, throughout elite society. And so, you know, these works were, were highly political, um, you know, there wasn't there wasn't really a distinction between devotion and politics here because they they were aiming to cultivate within political elites um, these feelings of devotion and they're they wanting to turn these elites into Buddhist devotees and therefore strengthen the monastic community itself um, and also internally in, in the monastic community, right? So, you know, this literature essentially it turned the monastic community into into an effective community. Um, Devotional literature allowed these monks to simultaneously experience these emotions, and it also consolidated this monastic community, just in the same similar ways that you know standardizing uh, monastic discipline or standardizing some doctrinal ideas may present may uh, create monastic coherence. Um, shared emotions as well were very much important in creating the coherence necessary for for monastic reform. Um, and so, yeah, emotions as well as ideas were were very very. Um, very political. So I'm very interested, and in, in this is, I, I appreciate quite a general question, but one I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into over the last five years. Um, but I'm very interested in the selection criteria that you used. Um, you have these these six scholar monks in particular you focus on throughout the book. Um, how did you narrow it down to these six monks, these six works as well and not others? So there are, I suppose what I'm really asking is, are there texts or authors you had to cut for brevity that... Um, maybe didn't quite make it in, in this book. Yes. So it was a, it was a hard decision actually, which, uh, which text to include. Um, but actually originally when I was, when I was writing the book, um, I hadn't intended for parts, uh, two and three to actually be structured around specific case studies. Um, you know, I, I had wanted to, to talk in, in more general terms about the literary developments of the period, um, particularly, uh, in terms of genre, and so I actually started. There are a few draft chapters on my my hard drive, which uh, simply just talk about the genre as a whole. You know, talk commentary or, or poetry. But I found that 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 approach it became a little bit too abstract, and um, I couldn't quite get into the the heads of the monks in a way, if you see what I mean, in the in the way that I wanted to. Um, and so, yeah, I decided to focus on these six case studies, choosing six texts, um, while trying at least, you know, in most track, you know, most of these chapters to to draw out some general developments that could apply to almost any text in that genre. Um, and even when I was focusing on the specific details of a particular text, I, I still kind of kept in mind the idea that I was trying to tie some of these details to um, other developments in the period across genres. Um, but in terms of you know choosing the texts, I guess um, well one you know I rep I chose texts that I thought best represented their genre, and I, I you know I was focusing on what the texts that I thought were the most influential during the period, um, that that had the biggest impact on on Pali literary history, um, not only in the Reform era but actually you know I kept in mind as well that the history of Theravada Buddhism as a whole. So you know there's you know like the Jinalankara you could argue. Actually, in Sri Lanka, this is a, a Buddha biography. Sorry, um, this 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 biography of the Buddha. Uh, you know, it, it it was it was an important text, but it wasn't necessarily as 
as important perhaps as, as, as some other works, but at the same time, it, it had a huge impact in Southeast Asia. So, you know, sometimes I, I would be nudged towards a particular text because of its impact on, on the tradition as a whole and not just the reform era. But the main focus was on, on the impact uh, and its importance in the reform era. Um, and I guess the other consideration I had was, was the interest and, and the, I guess the patience of my readers, right? So, um, you know, in the, in the grammatical and commentarial chapters, I'm dealing with quite f- quite complex stuff. Um, you know, these 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 intellect these uh, these complex intellectual changes. You know, uh, after all, it's it's it, we're we're dealing with scholasticism in these chapters. Um, and so, in the in the chapter on anthologies, I, I wanted to choose a, a doctrinal anthology rather than one on monastic discipline. Um, so I was thinking maybe of doing this uh, handbook on on the Vinaya, on the monastic discipline, the Vinaya Sangha, uh, because it was really important and influential. But I ended up moving to this doctrinal handbook um, simply because I, I thought, you know, after some grammar and commentary, it might be a bit dry to then go to some kind of very technical problems in the Vinaya. Um, but in any case, it kind of worked out because the the doctrinal anthology, the the Sara Sangha. Um, you know, as useful um, as this work is, is a kind of manual for for those who are aspiring to Buddhahood, and so it had a lot of theory about uh, devotion and emotion that linked well to the the final part of the book on emotion. Um, but in terms of, of text, I didn't manage to look at. Um, I would really have liked to look at the the Chulavangsa um, as a literary work. So this is a history. Um, of the monastic community. And part of this text, at least the text part which was written during my period, this reform era, um, it narrates the history of the reign of Parakrambahu I in, in a very ornate literary fashion. And, you know, this history of Parakrambahu is written probably a couple of decades after his rule um, during the Civil War. And it, it, you know, it celebrates his political power and his might um, and his role as a great um, patron of Buddhism. Um, and I think this, this eulogistic kind of recollection of, of, of Prakrambahu's reign, it, it serves as a, as a useful reminder, um, which I'm not sure, you know, I emphasized enough in the book that, you know, even though the monks, they made the best of this turmoil um, and they, they, they did well, you know, in, in, in this era of political fragmentation. You know, they still very much longed for an age of political consolidation um, where the community uh, could depend on, on say, a single uh, munif- munif- like munificent king. Um, and so in a sense, then, I think we can, you know, I can say that these monks were somewhat uh, reluctantly autonomous, right? Um, and they never really lost the, the sense that Buddhism was, was best with a, with a strong centralized royal support. Um, and this, con- you know, you could potentially contrast this with with the parallel developments in in late medieval Europe, right? Where, in a sense, the the church was more assertively um, separating itself from what was considered to be secular power. Um, you know, in terms of the autonomy that these two traditions carved out for themselves, you know, we can talk about these uh, in a kind of comparative on a comparative basis. But I would say the difference, the main difference, is you know, the Buddhist tradition really never um, you know, it always was 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 hoping that a, a new monarch would come along to centralize things again. You know, um, 
like Ashoka or someone like that. Um, and so even though the monastic Sangha, you know, it was autonomous, it had this, it had its own king essentially in the form of the Grand Master, and it was functioning um, very well by itself. You know, in their writings, these monks very much were longing for for the days of Ashoka, where a king would would oversee the Buddhist tradition as a great patron, basically. Well, thank you so much for um for for talking us through those arguments. It's a uh... I can say from personal experience, it's a fascinating book, and I hope um, a lot of our listeners are inspired to to read them in more detail. Just as we wrap up, I was hoping I could ask you sort of the traditional question on the podcast. Um, what is it that you're working on now that that this book is finally out there? Sure. So um, I'm currently working on a, a new book, um, tentatively uh, called Buddha Worlds. Um, so this is a, a history of, of Theravada Buddhist um, cosmological and uh, ecological thought. So uh, in many ways, actually, you know, it's kind of a continuation of the things I couldn't write about in in rewriting Buddhism. Um, you know, a lot of it is still relevant to that particular period. So, you know, this, this focus on cosmic decline, um, devotion, the path to Buddhahood, um, you know, it, that we find in the Reform Era, this led uh, in the monastic writings to a great deal of cosmological speculation, um, describing like the intricacies of the universe and, and, and the relationships of the living beings within it. Um, and this really kicks off in, in a big way in Southeast Asia too. So, you know, while we, we see this in Sri Lanka in the Reform Era, um, as these monastic lineages spread to, to Southeast Asia, uh, monks in Northern Thailand and Burma, they began to write these long treatises on the, the cosmos or the loka, uh, the world. And, you know, again, all of these texts are fairly neglected, uh, at least in English language scholarship. And um, I guess my my book is, you know, this book at the moment. I'm trying to, I'm I'm, envis- I'm, I'm envisaging it as a essentially a, a sketch of a larger history of Theravada Buddhist ideas about the the world, um, the loka, from the canon all the way to maybe the 19th century. Um, and I guess uh, another motivation for doing this is is this kind of wider debate. That is, that is happening about the compatibility of Buddhist thought and environmentalist thought. Um, and so since the 1970s, uh, historians and, and scholars of religion, right, they, they've been debating whether our, our current climate crisis, uh, whether it owes its origins in some respects uh, to medieval Christian theological ideas about the natural world. And then, you know, in contrast with this, you know, you've had some scholars who presented Buddhism, at least in theory, as, as a tradition compatible with, with modern environmentalism. Um, but these debates, you know, especially in, in relation to Theravada Buddhism, um, they basically focus on the same ancient texts, um, the, the suttas of the Pali Canon. And they, they've basically ignored what, what later Buddhists in history wrote about the natural world. So, you know, I'm hoping to fill in that gap and, 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 and work out, you know, how did, did Buddhist ideas about nature change over time? Um, but you know, I've only just started started working on this this work, so uh, you'll have to give me another five to ten years before we can talk about it in more detail. Well, if the podcast is still running in five to ten years, um, I'll, I'll hope that we will meet here once again. <laughs> it sounds like a fascinating and very timely book. <laughs> thank you, Bruno. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Alistair. Um, until next time. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.